Today's scripture reading is from Jonah 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Before I do, uh, here's where I want to start. We are in the book of Jonah, okay? If you're new at all, which I'm assuming some of you are because of the uh, dedications, we feel like the best way to understand the Bible is go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're going through the book of Jonah. This is the third week of four weeks. The book of Jonah is four chapters. So we're just doing one chapter a week. And today we're in chapter three. Now here's what I want you to know. The book of Jonah is meant to be about Jonah. Okay, I need you to keep that as a framework for us. It's not about the fish, right? It's not about the sailors that we encountered. It's not even about Nineveh. The book of Jonah is meant to be about Jonah. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit today, and you'll see that that's in spades next week. Okay, so let me pray for us, and then I'll pick us up kind of context-wise where we are if uh, this is your first time. Father, we ask that you would uh, anoint our time together as we, we've gathered to hear your word Uh, something that your people have done for uh, thousands of years. We pray that you would anoint our time, that, um, yeah, that we'd see it the way that you want us to see it. We wouldn't put our own spin or flavor on the text, but we would just, we would dive in. We we would hear your voice, Spirit, in Jonah chapter 3, and uh, and our hearts would be stirred uh, for a greater affection for you and uh, what you want to do in us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Okay, that's the last verse of the chapter that we covered last week. We did not cover it uh, last week because it it helps us understand going into this week. So uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 says this, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now if you're new, that's really, really weird. And it's a weird part to come in. And if you're new to Christianity, it only gets weirder because we believe that somebody rose from the dead. So there's a lot of weirdness in what we, we've got to unpack here. So here's what we got contextually. Here's what we can understand. Um, the way that the, the, the book works in, in, with, with Jonah is God speaks to Jonah. Jonah then flees from God because God tells him to go to Nineveh, right? And he ends up going the opposite direction, uh, direction, Tarshish. So as he flees, this crazy circumstance with these sailors, he ends up in the water, in the water, this big fish swallows him. In chapter two, there's this beautiful poetic prayer that Jonah begins to lay out in repentance to God. He knew he shouldn't have fled. He recognized that salvation comes from him and him alone. And then verse 10 happens. This thing is spit out. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Uh, Charles preached the, the first week of Jonah, which was a few weeks ago. And he said the first three verses set up the entire book. 
chapter one, uh, uh, the first three verses set up the entire book and he's totally right. Okay. So here's what I want to do. Um, so I don't know if you've ever been in, in an environment where you're super excited about something and you try to explain it to somebody and they're, they don't get that excited. Right. So usually it's something, you know, really well, maybe computer programming or whatever it is. I don't know what your guys' uh, uh, hobbies are, but for example, I love basketball and there's this great iconic moment where Jordan goes up with one hand and in the air, he switches to the other hand. It's like one of the most iconic layups of all time. Now, if I show my wife, Candace, that layup and how he's in the air and switches the other hand, she, she would go, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Right. And I would go, pretty cool. You think flying is pretty cool because that's what happened, right? No, no, that's amazing. And not just because I can't do it. Like it's amazing to watch even now. I mean, it's a moment where a guy's stuck in the air, doesn't know what to do with the ball. They're so gifted. They don't know what to do with the ball in the air. They decide I'm going to throw it off the backboard, land real quick, jump again, grab it and dunk it. You're going, that's crazy. That's, that's quick thinking, agility. I mean, it's, it's all put together. That's wow, right? Now, you may look at that and go, eh, that's cool, I guess. Here, are you crazy, right? And so you may have those things. Maybe it's gardening, whatever it is. When I read Jonah, I feel like I want you to see how crazy. It's from the left hand to the right hand. Do you see how amazing this is? So give me two minutes to try to show you that Jonah is not just about like, it's this prophet who flees and he's swallowed and the city repents. It's more than that. As Tim Mackey said, it's written by a literary ninja. It's doing something that's so cool that you might've missed if you've taught, like uh, trusted in those talking vegetables. So let me show you this uh, paradigm real quick. There's this chart. So here's what's jo- about Jonah is so amazing. Last week I said it goes through, th- through these three big sections. Jonah and God's word, Jonah and God's world, Jonah and God's grace. What's crazy is that if you were to take Jonah chapter one and go through the end of chapter two, it doesn't just kind of look like Jonah chapter three and four. It almost mirrors it exactly. So when we read this word, Jonah chapter three, uh, uh, verse one, two, and three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it. The message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. When we, when we read that, tell me that does not sound familiar. In chapter one, you can see the first three verses mere almost exactly outside of the end. In chapter one, the word came to the Lord and Jonah fled. In this instance, the only difference is Jonah went. What you're going to find is in chapter one, the word of warning, the response of the pagans, the response of the pagan leaders mimicked perfectly verses four, five, six, and seven. It's crazy. From the left hand to the right hand. Do you not see this? Okay. And so at the end, what we're going to find is the, the 10 verses in Jonah chapter two, mimic the 10 verses in Jonah's chapter four. This is literary ninja ship. It's, it's put something in front of us. We're meant to see something more than just a fish and a prophet. We're meant to begin to put things together. And so what I want to do this morning is to begin to start that second track, begin to put these things together. And we have to start with this one question for us to understand the context. Why Nineveh again? If this first column is right, when it's all said and done, we could have been done. The fish spits out Jonah onto dry land. We could end the book right there. Why is God so bent to repeat the whole process to get him to Nineveh 
again. Now, if you understand Old Testament literature at all, you know this is completely almost contrary to the way that we understand most of the other prophets. I mean, there are moments where you'll find um, like Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Nahum, where they proclaim against the nation, but none of them, none of those prophets are called to go to that nation to proclaim against them. This is counter to everything we understand with all the other prophets. Jonah is very unique in that way. So why Nineveh? Now, um, I need you to understand even from the jump of what we saw in chapter one, even why he might flee. Because God's doing something. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh for a reason. But Jonah Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So just so you can understand why, in part, he might understand, I'm going to give you a couple reasons. The first one is this. Nineveh's really bad. I don't mean just like, yeah, I don't know, they're not good people and don't pay their taxes. I mean terrible human beings. Let me read a very long quote to you from uh, Tim Keller that I thought was helpful in understanding uh, what we can get to to, uh, unpack Nineveh. It says this, Assyria, so just to be clear, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of the military victories, gloating of whole uh, plains littered with corpses and cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor Shalmanazar III is well known for uh, depicting torture. This is, it, it's only going to get bad. Dis- dismembering and uh, decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. So there was a one point where this, this king like gloated at how he treated people so poorly. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm, uh, arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. So it's not just that they were brutal. They would cut off both legs, cut off an arm, and they would shake their hand as they looked him in the eye as they were dying. They were evil. That's evil. What a terrible, terrible thing to do. Um, I forgot it was distracted me, the losing of legs and an arm. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They uh, pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched out their bodies with ropes so that they could be filleted alive and their skin displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their city were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. One of the commentaries uh, called Nineveh specifically a terrorist state. It was awful. It was awful. But it's not that it's just awful, you guys. It's not that it's just, wow, Nineveh was really, really bad in how they treated other human beings. You have to understand, this is how they treated Jonah's family. For about a 50-year period, uh, the Assyrians just plundered uh, uh, the capitals uh, of, um, of the people of God until eventually in 722 BC, they just outright took everything and murdered uh, the capital of, of Israel and Judah at the time. And it's important because it, it's eventually the, the Babylonians come over and, and, uh, and take over. And we have the rest of, if you know familiar scripture, kind of this kidnapping the people of God in exile. Well, it started with the Assyrians. And Jonah is all too familiar. It was probably accurate to say Jonah not just knew, but was probably related to someone that the Assyrians killed. This would be like, as Charles said, but let me just paint it a little bit more in chapter one. This would be like a Jewish person in the 30s and 40s in a concentration camp 
They're in a concentration camp, and they find a way to break out. They march to Nazi Germany, where the, the Hitler headquarters are, and they begin to call out to Hitler, it's time to repent. I mean, imagine it, not just the nuances of what would go on within that Jewish person, how much he might hate Nazi Germany, but the power dynamics are insane. And so it's crazy for us to read these words. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> Jonah goes to Nazi Germany and he proclaims you're going to be overthrown. Now I'm going to unpack that statement, but let's just understand the, the, the bigness of Nineveh. It was uh, very close, at least in contention to the largest city in the world at that time, probably 150,000 people in this city. Um, some commentators and they're all newer commentators said that the city was probably 60 miles wide. Uh, I think that's insane. There's no ancient city at that time that that was big. And the way they do the calculations is because it's a, a day's journey. They would say we can on average probably walk 20 day or 20 miles a day. And so you have 60 miles. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's being communicated. All archaeological uh, study would show that Nineveh was closer to three to five miles wide. And I think what's being unpacked here, the three days journey is not 60 miles, it's three to five, meaning, but you would go through the whole city. It would take about three days to walk through the, the breadth and width of how big it is to see everything. Uh, matter of fact, just so you know, side note, we'll post a 3D rendering, this video 3D rendering of Nineveh, what you can look like at the time of Jonah, which is kind of cool. But all that to say, uh, regardless of how big it is, Jonah only enters one-third or does one-third of the journey into to Nineveh. You can see it there in the text. If you look again, uh, going into to verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. It's a three-day's journey, and he only goes a day's journey in. And then he makes this declaration. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, this is five words. <laughs> Jonah goes in to the city that he didn't want to originally, into Nazi Germany, and goes, in five words, Nineveh is going to destroy. Dang it, I should count my words faster. Nineveh is going to be gone. That's what he says, right? Five words in Hebrew. Uh, overthrown is the word destroyed in Hebrew. Essentially, he walks in, and it might be a literary summary, but here's what's important. Even if it is a literary summary, and Jonah said more than this, there's a lot of things missing. Tim Mackey calls this repentance sabotage. Jonah does not mention what they need to repent from. He doesn't mention who they need to repent to. He doesn't mention who he is. He just throws this out. I hate them. I hope they suffer. He throws this out. You need to, you need to figure this out. Here's what you can know. Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And he leaves it as it is. It's crazy. It's crazy. So from there in verse 5. This is like the greatest fire and brimstone sermon of all time. Just, you guys are going to die. Okay, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then we're going to unpack this more. But here's what happens. Jonah goes into Nineveh, does this sermon, even if it is only five words or longer, gives this, this, quick, uh, this, quick, this quick proclamation. And in giving this proclamation, Nineveh responds with repentance. So uh, this is where we got to stop because this is another exciting part that I, I remember teaching a class on the book of Jonah about six years ago. And I remember learning about this. This is what's crazy. So Nineveh comes from a Latin word, Niniv. Uh, and we don't know exactly what it means, but it's close to like the place of fish. Uh, I realized actually when I was preaching in first service that this is why Phil Vasher, if you ever watch the VeggieTales uh, movie on Jonah, this is why they're slapping each other with fish. 
Like it's the place of fish. Um, and more so, actually in Nineveh, they served this fish god, uh, Dagon or Dagon. Uh, and, and here's why this is important. Dagon was this fish god that uh, was the god of the Tigris River, which runs right through Nineveh, runs right through Nineveh. Let me show you some archaeological finds that you can see. So this is a stone tablet. Uh, honestly, you could just Google this stuff and find a lot of this stuff. This is in Nineveh, a sacrificial um, uh, ceremony that's going on in Nineveh, but it's hard to see, but I want you to see how, uh, the priests up front and then the priests in the back, they have, they look like they're standing up fish, right? That's because the priests of Nineveh who worship Dagon, they wore like these fish suits. They worship this fish God. Okay. Let me show you another image. This is an image, uh, that's colored up. That is the God Dagon. He, He is half fish and half man. Okay, so here's Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and Assyria worships this, this, uh, uh, this god Dagon, who's half fish and half man, and now I need you to imagine for a second, there's this man who's been inside of a fish for three days. Most likely, the, the acid inside the stomach of this fish has probably bleached his hair, he's probably ghostly white, I didn't sleep very well, well last night, and I, when the alarm went off. I got up and I was, it wasn't groggy. It was like, am I awake? Am I asleep? Imagine three days in a fish. Imagine being in dark and now you got to open your eyes. So Jonah gets spit out. Here's the Ninevites kind of cleaning their nets. A big fish rolls up, spits out a human being, like looking ghostly white. Okay. Look at ghostly white. Nineveh, or, uh, Jonah stands up and goes, Hey, Right. He walks into Nineveh, a day's journey, and begins to preach. Now imagine the rumors that a man spit out by a fish to a city that worships a fish man. Imagine what they would hear. God quite literally uses the belly of the fish to to turn the soil of the Ninevites. He uses Jonah's tough situation to preach the gospel. Do you hear that? You got to know where I'm going with that. You got to see that. Let me actually show you this, uh, another picture. This is a European rendering of what we would say, uh, Jonah looked like, right? So here's this picture. Go back to the second picture. Okay. There's Dagon. Okay. Go back to the third picture. There's Jonah. Go back to the second picture. Dagon, Jonah, Dagon, Jonah. You, can you see it? Can you see that? They're going to see this. And so when, when the declaration is, and the people of Nineveh believed God, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You, yeah, right? Now, here's what's amazing about this. The declaration eventually reaches the king and uh, the king just goes all in. But what I want you to hear is in this, and, and maybe just to be aware, because you might not be familiar with this, though the word repent, uh, 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 occurs quite a few times, um, there's not really a repenting to as much as there is a repenting from. Okay, I want you to hear that. In verse 6, it says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, uh, uh, and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Calls him to a fast. Let them not feed or drink water, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? This mimics chapter one, verse six. If you remember that with the sailors, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Keller responds to this really well. Listen to this. I I told you guys I'm using Tim Keller's commentary on this. He says to Jonah's shock, the people neither laughed nor laid their hands on him. Instead, the entire city responded. The Hebrew word for repent occurs four times in verses eight through 10 against all expectations. The powerful, violent city of Nineveh repented and they did so from the greatest of them to the least from the top to the bottom of the social social spectrum. How could this have happened? I want to take a moment and just meditate real quick on the city of Nineveh. Because um, I think Nineveh has been experienced not just personally, but in friendship by a lot of us in this room, including myself. Like it almost feels like there's moments where maybe if you met somebody who's a believer now and they were just a terrible human before, and then all of a sudden they're a believer and you're talking to them and you almost like the original Christians with Paul don't believe it. You're like, this is crazy. Well, like I know who you are and suddenly there's this 180. I can't even recognize that type of person. And this is Nineveh. Now, now here's what we know about this. And here's why this is important. Um, on a, a kind of a social contextual platform, what we know historically is during this time, Assyria was experiencing mass plague, sickness, and death. And the reason they were experiencing this mass plague, sickness, and death, we'll get to in a second. But for sure, we would know and be aware that they would see this as an omen of things to come. And so when this fish man comes and proclaims Nineveh is going to be destroyed, bet they respond. Now, here's why this is important. Nineveh, in this moment, is up they're done. They're like, they're over it. They've experienced brokenness to the point of all they can take. And so they're looking for something to save them. Here's what I mean. I want you to imagine for a second, you're standing on your street and your neighbor across from you, their house is burning down and, and their house is burning down and they're standing on the street with you and they see it burning down, but they don't see fire. And so you're looking at it and you're watching it crumble. Things turn black, but they don't see the fire. And they're wondering, why is it collapsing in on itself? This is what's happening. Things are turning to ashes, but they can't see the fire. Imagine for a second that you could give them the ability then to see that fire. And they go, that's what's happening. Assyria and Nineveh as the capital is eroding from the inside because they continue to harbor sex traffickers. Because as a people and a government, they begin begin continue to plunder other cities. They have evil ways. They continue to foster slavery. They don't care about human life. And eventually what we know is sin has an eroding effect. And maybe you or I in moments can't see. I know there was a moment in my life I could not see that that eroding effect was sin. But I'm trying to put it in front of you and say the reason your house is burning down is because of fire. Sin is killing you and you don't even know it. I love that one of, one of the commentators said it like this. Alec Martyr, he said this. In a world created by a good God, evil and injustice are inherently self-destructive. The resulting social disintegration expresses God's wrath. He presides over the cause and effect processes he has built into creation so that they are expressions of his holy rule of the world. That is, so in summary, what what he's saying here is, that is, God has created the world so that cruelty, greed, and exploitation have natural 
uh, disintegrative consequences that are a manifestation of his anger towards evil. So here's what he's saying. God has made the world to work a certain way. Not only when you passively work against it, are you going to feel the effects of working out that way? Because you have your own philosophies that are better, your own ideas that are better, your own tact, your own politics. That's all better than what God would put in front of you. When not only that, but when you intentionally participate in the destructive ways of sin, hear me, like, give me grace, hear me. When you engage in pornography that continues to not just denigrate women, but foster sex trafficking at some levels, hear me, you will feel the weight of that. God has designed the world in such a way that you will begin to erode from the inside. And maybe you don't know why, but hear me when I say this. I say this in love. It's not judgment. It is sin. The reason you have it all together on the outside and you lay your head down at night and feel empty is because of sin. There is a fire that is burning down your house. It is like a parasite that is eating you alive and you don't know what is going on. It is sin. The book that Tim Keller, uh, with his commentary, he called it the prodigal prophet. And the reason that he called it that is because he um, puts, puts in position next to Jonah uh, a story that Jesus tells us. So he, Jesus told me this story, so let me tell it to you, but I'll contextualize it. I want you to imagine for a moment, there's a dad who has two sons, and he has $500,000 saved up to give his sons when they graduate. The younger son, at 16 years old, and now has the ability to drive, goes to the father and says, honestly, I don't want to wait until I graduate. Can I have my $250,000 now? The father goes, okay, you can have it now. He takes that $250,000 and he just spends it on stupid stuff. I don't mean just on cars, but I mean on prostitution. I mean, he lives in a hotel. He drinks himself half to death. And then maybe let's say he makes it a year. He finds himself in the gutter of Vegas, homeless somewhere. And there he is. He comes to from his stupor and he goes, what am I doing? I've done things my own way for this long and now I feel the effects of it. Keller puts this next to the people of Nineveh and Jonah before him, recognizing I've ran as far as I could in this direction and I feel the weight of brokenness now. I feel the erodive power of sin and I'm dying inside. Here's what's amazing. In verse 10, it says this. When God saw what they did, talking about Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is so in line if you want to read Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 11. This is exactly what God said he does. He says, if I declare destruction or punishment or wrath on someone, if I declare that, and that person turns from their way, all I've got is grace, baby. All I've got is grace. And so like the prodigal son, he says, man, what am I doing here? I'm in a gutter and homeless. Uh, at least I can go be a butler in my dad's house. And so he returns home thinking at least the dad is going to go. I told you, idiot, you shouldn't have done this. Not only does the dad not stand there to welcome his son, the dad in symbolism of God and his grace towards us moves towards, runs, it says, towards the younger son. This is Nineveh in this moment. This is you. This is me. How long will we continue to track down our own desires to find that it's sand that's just falling through our hands? How long are we going to continue to pursue the wickedness that is killing us? Let's call it what it is. It's sin. It's killing us. But God offers mercy. He offers mercy. 
Now, um, here's where I want to finish with this because um, it's important probably for you to be aware that ultimately, though God relents and does not bring destruction, Nineveh actually ends up being destroyed about 120 years later. Um, uh, the prophet Nahum, if you want to read it, there are three chapters in Nahum. Listen, if you have an ESV Bible, you, sh- you can look this up. I thought it was hilarious. There are three chapters in Nahum. Here's the titles of the three chapters in Nahum. Okay, maybe it's not funny. Maybe it's just sad. Chapter one, Nahum one, God's wrath against Nineveh. Chapter two, the destruction of Nineveh. Chapter three, woe to Nineveh. Okay. Nineveh may have repented and, and maybe not followed, but at least stopped what they were doing in the ways of uh, a sin eroding their lives. But eventually they turned back and they, they, they did what they want again. And God eventually brought the destruction and allowed someone to plunder them and overtake them just like he said he would. Right? And so it's important for us to know that, but it, it begs a big question as we kind of stand back and look at the, the prophet Jonah, because here's what we can know. Um, if we're just to stand back, we're to wrestle, as you'll see in chapter four, with what Jonah wrestles with. And that is this, God saved me, but I don't believe God can save anyone. I mean, God saved me and the whale and the, the big fish there. I was God saved me, but I don't believe God can, could save anyone. And here's what, here's what Jonah chapter three so, shows us. God can save anyone. He can save anyone. It's important for you to hear what I said in the beginning that Jonah is meant to be the point of this book. Not Nineveh, not the whale. Here's why. There's another prophet called Hosea. And God does this with Hosea. God says, hey, Hosea, I want you to marry this prostitute. Hosea's like, that's just weird. Okay, I'll marry this prostitute. Is it weird? Because that's how I took on my people. I took on a prostitute type people. Then he takes on this this prostitute as his wife. And guess what the prostitute does? She cheats on him. And Hosea goes, this is frustrating. Why would you make me do this? And God goes, this is how I feel. He uses Hosea's circumstances, his life, to show us and paint us a bigger picture. Hear me. Jonah is meant to symbolize Israel. Jonah is meant to symbolize us. Don't you see? We're to go to Nineveh. We keep fleeing and running, I have to ask, how long do we think our comfort, our pad locks, how long do we think our garage doors can keep us from our neighbors? How long do you think God's going to be cool with that? You think Tarshish is comfort? I'm telling you, the only place that is comfortable is where Jesus is. And you want to know where Jesus is? He's in Nineveh. He's in Nineveh. He's not standing back. Acting. Listen, If you're not a missionary, then you are someone I'm looking to save. You need to understand that. That we're going after you. You passively, me passively standing by our co-workers, Nineveh, our family members, Nineveh, our friends, Nineveh. As we continue to interact with our culture, it's not as easy as just going, yeah, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of live this life. Eventually, the declaration has to be made. Your house is on fire. But we flee from Nineveh. The dark parts of our world. Ain't nobody trying to move to the third world countries. Uproot your family. Leave the security of your home. And nobody trying to go with church plants. And the dark parts of our city. We like our comfort. We like our Tarshish. But hear me. We're Jonah. God is trying to show us something. Go to Nineveh. And so that's, I, I give you two parts. Two Two options on this, if you want to be part of Redemption Peoria. There's two options in this. One, 
You need to identify the places in the world you feel like God may be calling you to. And, and maybe, as you may, might hear murmurs of, of church plants that we hope to do in the future, they're going to be in areas of the West Valley that nobody else is planting churches. They're in the hard parts of our cities. And we're going to go there, and maybe that's uncomfortable for you, to you, for you to move you and your three children to that place. Hear me. If that's where Jesus is, that's the only place that's safe. And God is calling some of you there. But if you insist on staying, then I, then I talk to you in the second way. If you insist on staying, and you say, no, this is where God is calling me. I believe that this is where God is calling me. Hear me. Not identifying Nineveh is never going to be an option for us. We're going to continue to look at our coworkers around us. You're going to be pressed to see where there is cruelty, where there is suffering, where, where uh, the people are not being treated as the Imago Dei. And hear me. This, I say this in grace. Politics aside, that's all trash. We're pursuing the kingdom. And I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat. We're going to find the lost. We're going to find the least. We're going to find the marginalized. We're going to find the suffering. I don't care what country they're from, what ethnicity they are. It does not matter. We as believers, as Redemption Peoria, will pursue the Ninevehs. Because that's where we believe Jesus is. As a matter of fact, um, a guy named Abraham Kuyper, he... uh, he was asked towards the end of his life, if you don't know Abraham Kuyper, he's a, a big deal in the Reformed tradition, but you can look him up. He, uh, he was asked at the end of his life, what is the most important verse in the Bible to sum up all of Scripture? You don't know what he said? He said, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. This is crazy. The reason that he said Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 is because Jonah was originally supposed to be the people of Israel. That God called a people, Israel, to be a light and go to all the Ninevehs of the world. But like Jonah, Israel fled. And they did not live up to their calling. They, hear me, failed. They failed. But when the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, is to symbolize Jesus Christ. And where Israel failed, Jesus comes on the scene, he enters into Nineveh, and he declares the word of the Lord. Now, we believe theologically that right now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And so who do you think is meant to be the light, according to John 1, 1, 5, that continues to shine? Who is the one who continues to go in Nineveh, where Jesus is? Us. The reason Abraham Kuyper said this is because there is a call for the church to recognize where Israel failed in their call to go to the nations, the church will not And I'm telling you, you want to be a follower of Jesus? Let me tell you where he is. He's in the Ninevehs. He's not in the comfortable, Tarshish places. He's in the Ninevehs. He's not in the ship asleep. He's in the Ninevehs. He's in the Ninevehs, and that's where his people need to be. Let me finish you with Charles Spurgeon, as a wise man would. Have we none out there who can say, here I am, send me? Jesus, is there not one? Must heathens perish? Must the gods of the heathen hold their thrones? Must your kingdom fail? Are there none to own you? None to maintain your righteous cause? If there be none, let us weep, each one of us, because such a calamity has fallen on us. Let's enter into the dark places. Let's not fade to black. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. 
that's found um, in spades in the city of Nineveh at this moment. A terrible, terrible people that um, did terrible things and repented. And you, you relented from your judgment, from your disaster. I pray that we would see ourselves in that, that we would wrestle with the fact that so many even in this room are walking their own path like Nineveh. But they're at the end of themselves. And that they would see your grace, that you provide a hope that they don't know, a hope they can't have on their own. Jesus, thank you for your cross, that if we were in the Old Testament, it would be done. We'd stay in the fish, die away, but no, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. Jesus, thank you for bringing the gospel of your name to the world. That in it we have hope, in it we have security, in it we have grace and mercy. And then I pray, God, for every single person in this room, for them to see themselves as a missionary. Everywhere they are, they would identify themselves that we have planted a church, we have continued to store communities, we've continued to move out from this place, gather on Sunday for the purposes of mission. That we desire to be everywhere worship is not. Help us get there. We love you. We thank you. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen.